Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, uh, Children's Choir, all of you. We're gonna, I'm going to read Luke 24, 1 through 12. Luke 24, 1 through 12. The title of the message today is Grasping God's Eternal Story. Grasping God's Eternal Story. And uh, Luke 12, 24, 1 through 12. We're just going to kind of walk through four major points today. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Remember those four words. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. It, in that, we can tell the story of what Christ did for us. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to a tomb, bringing the spices that they prepared. We just heard that a moment ago. They found the stone rolled away in the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood with them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down on the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead, asked the man. He is not here, but he has been resurrected. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the leaven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them. And they did not believe the woman. So Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes. So he went home amazed at what had happened. From this point on, Jesus was revealed to over 500 people in his physical body. Today, what I want to do is take some time and just walk through what this is really all about. I want to answer just four simple questions. First question is, this is the story. How did it all begin? How did it all begin? Number two, what went wrong? What went wrong? Number three, is there any hope? And number four, on this resurrection day, what will the future hold? What will the future hold? It all begins with the creation. How did it begin? The creation. It all begins with the story of God. The story begins when God, who has always been, he has always existed and he always will, always has, it seemed confused and it's because he's beyond anything that anyone can ever comprehend. In Genesis 1-1 it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. It begins with God, but it also flows through the creation. In the beginning, God spoke everything into being. By his command, the entire universe was created and filled with dramatic display of galaxies, stars, planets, everything. And in that, he created the Garden of Eden. There was harmony in the, in the early creation. But God's design, all creation was in harmony and was exactly the way it was supposed to be. During this time, there was no pain, there was no suffering, sickness, and death. There was complete love, acceptance, and intimacy between God and man, between Adam and Eve, and throughout creation. But something tragic happened. Before we move forward and talk about the fall, I just want to give you a couple of things to think about here. First of all, I want you to understand that we as Christians, we do not come at this with a blind kind of faith. We don't come in this you know, putting our brain on a shelf. We don't do that. Intelligent design teaches many things. Design and fine-tuning, for instance, point to an intelligent designer. I want you to put the picture up there, if you will. This picture, it was taken by the 
Hubble telescope from 2003 to 2012, it took 841 orbits. There were wavelengths of light of infrared and near and far. They found 60 sextillion stars. And think about this. By that, they found 10,000 galaxies. The chances of the universe being as it is is one part in 100 million, billion, 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 billion. That's literally 10 followed by 53 zeros. I cannot prove to you that, 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 that the creation has a divine design. But I think it is true when we say, when we look at the complexity of creation, that there is design in, in, in creation. There's design in it. For instance, the information encoded in the DNA points to a divine encoder. The, the Human Genome Project mapped the entire DNA sequence. They found over three billion letters long for each one of us, how complex we are, written in strange kind of four-letter code. It would take 31 years of reading day and night at a pace of three letters per second. Reading in regular font, printing in regular font would produce a tower the size of the Washington Monument. We are indeed very complex creatures. To say all of this happened by accident? No. For instance, your blood clotting in your hand. Michael Behe did some studies on this. And what he found out was when you put all the enzymes together, what it takes just to clot the blood, if you cut your hand or wherever that might be, he said that it's one-tenth to the eighteenth power, the chances of this just being by chance. For instance, he says, now if the Irish sweepstakes, just to understand the odds of that, had odds of winning one-tenth to the eighteenth power, and if a million people played the lottery each year, it would take an average of about a thousand billion years before anyone, not just a particular person, won the lottery. A thousand billion years is roughly a hundred times the current estimate of the age of the universe much complexity in the universe to say all this just happened by accident. This just happened by an explosion. This all just kind of came together. If there is design in the universe, is there a designer? Is there a designer? Is there someone who put all this together? And if he is, who is he? And how can we know him? How can we know? For instance, I have some people a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, but all of this is written in the Bible, and we don't really have anything to back that up. Well, again, I cannot prove to you the Bible is divine, but I can prove to you it's pretty accurate. If you, I'm for, you know, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, finding them in 1947, the earliest complete manuscripts we have of the Hebrew Old Testament were A.D. 900. The Dead Sea Scrolls contained manuscripts dated back to 125 B.C. and showed precision in translation. For instance, I was on the plane the other day. I think I told you about this. This guy looked at me. He said, I don't believe the Bible because it's been changed all these times. I said, do you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls? He said, no. I said, they went back to literally 1,100 years when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, found almost a whole scroll of the book of Isaiah. And when they checked it out, it was almost 95, 98% exactly what we had and what we were reading. And the only differences in that were jots and tittles of things that, that wore off or, or difference of different scribes who would write it in a different way. But there was none of that to, to suggest that any of it had ever been changed. I mean, think about it. Think about when we walk through this. I mean, you know, of the, of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there were only 17 letters in question, and none of them affected the passage. Archaeological evidence, Sodom and Gomorrah, was found to be the centers of commerce and geographically situated in exactly where the Bible described. Evidence points to earthquake activity and brimstone exactly the way the Bible describes 
When they unearthed Jericho, they found, they found that the walls of Jericho actually fell outward, not inward. Why? Because the Bible says the walls fell down flat. If you're inside, why would you, and, you're, why would you, and they're trying to come in, why would you want to push the walls outward? Because the Bible says that the walls fell down flat. So much of what they're finding in archaeological evidence is my nephew is getting his PhD in archaeology. He's starting a dig this summer in Kazakhstan, and he can tell you many of the things that, that explain them in ways that, that I don't have the education to be able to do. But let's just say this, so much of it, again, I cannot prove to you that the Bible is a divine book, but I can say to you, it is phenomenally reliable. Think about this in the New Testament. There are a total of 24,970 manuscripts in the New Testament. The closest work of antiquity, that is the closest work of any books written about the same time was the Iliad, and there's only 643. If you look at the original works of Plato, there's less than 10. Nobody's questioning the works of Plato, but everybody wants to question the Bible. But yet we can take it literally back within 70 years. Many of the manuscripts, many of the, 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 the parchments that we have can take it back within 70 years of when it actually happened, which means that it wasn't secondhand. It was literally people who saw the resurrected Savior who were writing these things and saying to them, other people, this is what I saw. The Bible is phenomenally reliable. Well, think about it. It is virtually accepted the New Testament was written within 70 years of Christ's death. To put it into perspective, the earliest manuscripts we found for the seven extant plays of Sophocles is at least 1,400 years after the original, and it is considered to be accurate. 70 years, 1,400 years. We're going to consider one accurate. You literally have to throw out all the works of antiquity to say the Bible is not accurate. Again, I can't prove to you that it is a divine book. That's going to take a step of faith. And the power of the Holy Spirit to draw you there. Think about it, the New Testament is also supported by secondary witnesses of the patristic citations. The entire New Testament, think about this. If you, if, if this, is, this is amazing to me. Almost the total entire New Testament can be, writ, can be copied from the early church fathers like Justin Martin or Ire, uh, Eusebius, Irenaeus. If you take the writings of what they quoted from Scripture, this is just an amazing way that God prepared all this. If you take all these writers of those early times who also copied the Scripture and saw it, and you put that back together, together, you can put together almost the whole New Testament. Again, backing up the accuracy of what the New Testament says. Is it divine? I believe so. But to say that it has no, it is not accurate or has been changed all these years is not accurate at all. It's not being a good scholar when it comes to that. So first and foremost, let's say this, that in creation, God created this. We are very complex beings. It takes more faith to me to believe that somehow we started from some explosion over here out of nothing. And then i got to ask you the question that Plato asked. He said there was what he called an unmoved mover. Who put this into action? Who started all of this? If we're going to say that, and then we're going to explain it by those ways, who put all this into action? I believe there's a divine designer, and his name is Yahweh. I believe he's always been. So what went wrong? Number two, the fall. It happened because Adam and Eve were far from being equal to God, yet they were in a loving place in charge of created, uh, what had been created in the Garden of Eden. But what did they do? They'd been given the freedom to make choices, and a lot of people ask, well, why did that happen? 
because God wanted his creation to choose to love him because if they had been robots, they really wouldn't have loved him. They would have been forced to do so. God gives us the same choice. We choose to love him. Come on, let me tell you something. If you've got to somehow threaten someone to love you, they don't probably don't, they're not going to love you. He didn't do that. He gave us the choice to be able to do that. And rebellion came in Adam and Eve's heart, and they ate the fruit, and sin entered the world. The consequences of this were devastating. Like a virus, sin entered into all creation and into the hearts of all generations, including us. We've all read and heard the stories of war and poverty and disease and greed and scandals that plague our world today. Last week, there were two, two churches in Egypt that were attacked by ISIS. I have a girl in my class. Her father is in that church. The little boy, one of them that died, was her next-door neighbor. Look how real all of this is coming. The Bible talks about the wars and rumors of wars and all that's going to take place. We live in a hugely sinful world. You say, well, why would God allow that to happen again? God did not cause that. Sin causes that. God has given us the way through being redeemed and being pulled back and born again to him to restore what we originally had, which was not that. When we think about the perfection and love that existed in the beginning of creation, we realize that we're more flawed and far more sinful than we can dare to imagine. Just think of the grudges we've held, the lies we've told, the thoughts we've never dared to say out loud. An honest glance into our own hearts reveals the truth. We are all guilty of sin. Everyone has sinned. And the ultimate consequences is even, more, even worse than physical death. It is eternal separation from a loving God and a terrible misery and unhappiness. Because of all of this, we need to consider the questions, can anything be done? Is there hope? Yes, there is, praise God. It's called the rescue. Is there hope? You see, God made a promise. When Adam and Eve did that in the Garden of Eden, he promised them that one of the descendants would someday rescue mankind from sin. Over the next centuries, God prepared the way for his person who would become the savior of the world. The exact birth details and life and death were recorded all through the scripture. Jesus fulfilled over 360 direct prophecies. In fact, the whole Bible ultimately points towards the one person who is the focal point of all humanity and all history. His purpose is coming to seek and to save those who are lost, it says in Luke 19. The promise is kept through Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. God became human in the person of Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years ago, fulfilling all the predictions of the Old Testament. Jesus' birth was miraculous since his mother was a virgin. His life was unique. He perfectly enjoyed. Jesus lived a totally perfect life. But the grave could not hold Jesus. Three days later, as we just read, he resurrected. He emerged from the tomb, fulfilling it. Why? Because when Jesus died, the Bible says that it turned dark that God turned his back upon his, his son, and what he did was he put the sin of all mankind on him because sin always ends in death. When Jesus went to the grave, yes, he died, but he resurrected. Why? Because the grave is a place for people who have sinned. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, he left our sin in the grave. He overcame death for us. That's what he did. 1 Peter 3, 8 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Galatians 1, 4 said, Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned, in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Now, none of that would matter if the resurrection was not true, would it? I encourage you to go see The Case for Christ, the new movie. 
What you'll find is, is when he begins to seek, one of the first people he goes to is a man named Gary Habermas. Gary Habermas teaches at Liberty. He's a really close friend of mine. Gary, in debates all over the world that has now for the last 30 years, has debated. Gary is a brilliant man, just a very humble man. Gary, Gary has what he calls the minimalist viewpoint. And what he says is this. He says, it all goes back, it hinges on the resurrection. If the resurrection is not true, if it is not true, then Christianity is false and we have no hope. But if it is true, if it is true that Jesus resurrected, again, if it is true, then we have all hope. Here's what he does. He talks about the uniqueness of of Christianity and he gives five simple points. Here's the first one. Here's the rescue. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Death on the cross was a common execution employed by the Romans. It is considered the worst form of torture you could have. But Jesus' death is attested in the Gospels and even in non-Christian historical sources. Again, you need to understand, these are what we're saying here is Jesus died on the cross. We can prove that he did even by non-biblical Christian sources. Uh, non-biblical, non-Christian sources would back up the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, well, a lot of people died on the cross. A lot of people were crucified. Yes, but the Bible also affirms that Jesus Christ died on the cross. So what we're saying is, again, I can't prove to you that, but I can say to you historically that there were extra-biblical writers who had nothing to gain from this who will also write and say, yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross. Number two, how about this? The disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. Virtually every critical, every critical scholar agrees that the disciples truly believe they witnessed Jesus' resurrection and they were radically changed afterward. Their lives were transformed to the point that they were willing to suffer and die for their belief. Now to me, this is a huge thing. You got these, the disciples, not only that, the, the 500 after that. Think about this. They could have easily turned their back and done exactly what Judas did. They could have said, hey, I'll tell you where to find the body, but they didn't do that because why? They had met the resurrected Savior. They had met him. Even extra-biblical non-Christian writers backed up the fact that the disciples said and consistently said that Jesus Christ resurrected. Why would they do that? James was beheaded. Peter, Peter was killed on a cross upside down. Paul was crucified. By the year 100, all the disciples were gone. And G- I mean, John died on the, uh, died, was, lived his last years on the island of Patmos under the most evil emperors ever, who used to take Christian bodies and, and chop them up and put them on top of lampstands and burn them so that the smell of, and stench of, the, of the, the, the flesh would go through the city, dissuading people from believing in Christ. And you know what happened in the early church? The early church exploded in growth on the back of martyrs who died for their faith. You know why? Because think about this. It would be like this. You've got people who who are writing literally immediately after that. We go back to the 70 years, and so you have a grandfather who says, I met the resurrected Jesus. I was there the day that he died on the cross. I met him physically after that. And they're passing this on and on and on and on and on. And they're telling them what happened. And they're writing about this. And the families are seeing this. And they're saying, yes, he is alive. Think about this. The disciples couldn't agree on where to go to dinner before this. But they were willing to die for the fact that they said that Jesus Christ resurrected. Think about that. Would you die for a lie? Would you die for a lie? Would you? Would you put your head on a chopping block 
for a lie? Would you go to a cross for a lie? Would you be put in prison and beaten for a lie? Unless it was true. Number three, the church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. Saul of Tarsus, that is Paul, was once a fierce opponent of Christianity. His conversion is unique and is based upon the personal experiences with the risen Savior. He eventually died as a martyr. And yes, he has also supported historically that this is exactly what was claimed to happen. Think about this for a moment. Paul was a brilliant man. He was a Roman citizen. Paul could go anywhere he wanted to. He was wealthy. Paul was there when Stephen was beaten and killed. Paul could have gone anywhere he wanted to go. Think about this for a moment. Paul was a rock star of his day. Paul could eat in all the best restaurants, drive the best chariots. Paul could go anywhere he wanted to go. He could wear the best clothes. He could shop in the best places. But he gave it all up because he met the resurrected Savior on the road to Damascus that day. And then he writes much in most of the New Testament. And again, extra writers back up the very facts of what Paul says. So let me ask you a question. If you were Paul, would you do that if it was a lie? Would you do that? Number four, the skeptic brother of Jesus, James. If you look in John 7, all of his brothers despised him. Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. James is reported to be an unbeliever in Mark and in John 7. Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. And James is later identified by the year 70 as being the leader of the Jerusalem church. How did he go from jealous and a hater to being leader of the Jerusalem church to preaching the resurrection of Jesus unless he had met the resurrected Savior? He was one of the 500 who met Jesus and he was willing to die for that. Come on. James was beaten James was stoned. Debbie and I watched a, a, a history show last night. It was talking about the brother of Jesus who was stoned and killed for his faith. Why would he do that if it was a lie unless he'd met the resurrected Savior? How about this? Number five, the tomb was empty. It's a Jerusalem factor. I want you to think about what that means. It would have been impossible for Christianity to get off the ground if the body had still been in the tomb, but they've never been able to find the tomb. I mean, they've not been able to find the body. I want you to think about this. If, you, if you'd have been one of those disciples and you were simply just hiding this and you could have made a lot of money, would you have, been, would you have wanted to die for a lie or would you have sold the place? Because don't you think the early, the early, the folk, the early uh, religious leaders and all of them wanted to disprove what Jesus did? They would have marched through the streets and, and put him up and hung him up again and said, yes, you say this Jesus resurrected. No, we have his body right here. But they never found the body. They never you know, some people point to the swoon theory that saying that, and they talk about this in the movie, that saying that Jesus just never really died, that what happened to him was he, he just kind of came back to life. But yet, doctor after doctor after doctor has done research. When you talk about how badly beaten Jesus was, in, mo in most cases, by the time they got through beating them, before they took him to the cross, on the back, their inward organs would be showing. He would have lost so much blood. That's why they had to get someone else to carry the cross up the hill. There's no way he wouldn't have died. 
And when they poked him in the side, when the water and the blood came out, he was dying. Literally what they would do in crucifixion, they put Jesus on the cross. They'd already beaten him. He was bleeding down. They put nails in his, in his hands and his feet. And every time he had to breathe, he had to pull himself up. It's death by suff- suffocation. He could imagine as he lost more and more blood, he couldn't pull himself up. So eventually he suffocated. There's no reputable doctor anywhere that's going to say that you can go through that and actually live. No, it wasn't that Jesus just got sick and came back. He died. He went to the grave. Think about this. There's also one other thing. In those days, the first people that went to the grave, I just read about it, were women. Ladies, don't be offended by this because I have a house full of women myself. You know, and I teach my daughters to do anything that God tells them to do. That they, you know, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. But in that day, in that culture... A woman's testimony was not accepted in the court. So if you were writing a lie, why would you use a woman, women to be the first ones to give the testimony of the resurrected Savior unless that's exactly what happened? Again, I can't prove to you. I can't prove to you this happened. But I can say to you that in my mind, in my heart, it certainly points towards that. Unless there were millions of people who were just simply simply were crazy and out of their mind. There were hundreds and hundreds of people in that day who saw the resurrected Savior. You know, yes, I'm going to die, but it's a lie because it's a big joke. No, 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 nobody would die for a joke. They died because they saw him face to face. They met the resurrected Savior, and it is true. Our sin has been paid for. Guys, you can look at every religion you want, but Christianity deals with the main issue, which is that we are separated from God because of our sin. There is no restoration without putting our sin away and dealing with that. There had to be an atonement to pay the price for our sin. And according to Scripture, that is death. And we all go to the grave. We will die because we are sinners. Jesus never sinned. He resurrected. Why? Because he never sinned. And the Bible says, he says, tells us that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come to the Father except through me. Our salvation was purchased by Jesus' blood. There's no accident that all of this happened on the Passover weekend, at the celebrating when they put the blood over the door, the death angel passed over. The same thing is true here. The lamb, Jesus Christ, died for us. His blood paid the price for our sin, and the death angel passes over. All of us will die once, but we do not have to die twice. We do not have to die a second time and be eternally separated from God. So what would the future hold? Restoration. All things will become new. For those who trust in Jesus alone, God has promised that he will make all things new. The new heaven and new earth will completely be free of sin and selflessness. A place of perfect friendship with God and others in all creation. No more shattering earthquakes or devastating tsunamis or violent storms will plague the earth. No more pain or broken hearts or sickness or death will trouble us. Everything will be restored to the way it was meant to be. The new earth will once again be the perfect home God intended for, to, uh, for a creation. God's original purpose will flourish as those who trust in his rescue will enter into the grand purpose of loving him, serving him, enjoying a relationship with him forever. As Revelation 20, uh, 21.4 says, He, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor any more. For the former things have passed away, and we will live forever with God. We will be with him forever with God. 
So what's our part in this story? God is writing an amazing story from creation to restoration. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. My question is, what part will we play in the story? Faith is simply to trust Christ. That's how we come to him. We trust him alone to save us because there is no other way. It means instead of believing you can rescue yourself from consequences of sin, you transfer your trust to the rescue that he purchased for you and for me, for us, by his death, his burial, and his glorious resurrection. Our allegiance is to the new Jesus, the king. Those who place their trust in anything other than Jesus will find themselves forever separated from a loving God who gave his one and only son to set us free from the bondage of sin. Listen, I want us to take a moment and watch a video that explains this even better than I can. This is the story. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their heavenly Father and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Considering our world today, its obvious perfect peace didn't last. Turmoil, war, sickness, troubles. We each have our share. What went wrong? It started when a fallen angel named Satan grew jealous of God and determined to ruin the perfection of creation. Satan took the form of a serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to question God's goodness and rebel against his one rule. In disobedience, they ate the fruit and peace unraveled, ushering in sin and death, which still plagues us today. If we are honest, we are very much like Adam and Eve. We all rebel against our Heavenly Father, making our hearts heavy with fear, guilt, and shame. Our bodies are weary with sickness, disease, and death. Earth is afflicted with storms, calamities, and disasters. Even worse, sin has separated us from God, causing a permanent divide, a miserable separation called hell. The fallout of sin has been catastrophic. It's inescapable with no way to fix it, leaving us all to wonder, is there any hope? The love that prompted God to create us also prompted him to send a savior who would set everything right again. As centuries passed, God shared exact details of the coming savior's birth, life, and death. Everything in the Bible points to this rescuer. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth as God the Son to fulfill the promise. He was born miraculously 
as his mother was a virgin. Just like us, Jesus grew up and experienced life on earth. But unlike us, Jesus never sinned and always obeyed the Father. When Jesus was in his 30s, he began teaching all around Israel, pointing people to God's kingdom and performing many miracles. After a few years, he was wrongly accused and sentenced to an agonizing death on a cross. Jesus lovingly gave up his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of mankind. He died a perfect death, taking our place, the innocent for the guilty. But the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Three days later, God brought Jesus to life again. Jesus defeated sin by dying on the cross and defeated death by rising from the dead. Today, Jesus sits at God's right hand as king and judge over all creation. This is the story of rescue God has authored. He invites us through repentance and faith to make his story of rescue the one we trust in and live from. When we do, everything changes. And now, what will the future hold? For everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for rescue, God has promised to restore your heart and set you free from sin's hold. Because God is loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, tender-hearted, and true. God has also promised to make all things new. One day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, forever free from sin. Everything that causes pain and sadness will be gone. God has also promised to be with us forever. The moment you trust in Jesus, your relationship with God is restored because Jesus has closed the divide sin caused. Getting to know this all-loving God starts today and continues forever. For God's story never ends. You can make God's story the foundation of your life even now by admitting your need for God's rescue, asking forgiveness for your sin, trusting in Jesus Christ alone to rescue you, following Jesus in faith from this moment on. This is God's story. Will you make it yours? How can you do that? It's real simple. God is inviting all of us to be a part of his story. He's writing it throughout the ages to come. He's offering salvation to every single one of us. And our invitation of rescue is simple. You can embrace the rescue of God by simply doing this. Number one, admitting your need for God. Admitting that we need him in our lives. That we need Christ. Look at me. We cannot do this on our own, that we need a savior. Guys, it's not because we're good, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. It's not because we try to just do our best. No, we have to be redeemed. The Bible says none of us are good, no, not one. The purpose of this is for us to come back into relationship with him. But the first and most essential thing we need to do is admit that we need him. That's hard for us, particularly us as men, because we're prideful, me included, most prideful of all probably in this whole place. It's hard for us to admit our issues and our needs. 
We think we can fix everything, don't we? But we can't. We can't fix this. Only God can fix this because we are separated from him. Then we need to ask him to forgive us. We need to ask him to forgive us. And then we need to trust in him alone to rescue us. We need to repent of our sin. That is to turn away from that and make an about face and turn the other direction. Jesus died and rose again to pay the price for our sin. But he is not forcing this on us. We can only come to him through faith if we're willing to trust him and lay ourselves out there and say, God, I am yours. We need to follow Jesus Christ, the king, Make him at the king of our life in faith from this day forward. Four simple words. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Where are you at today with Jesus Christ? Of all the highest days of the year, is the gospel become something that's just kind of, you're callous to it, I've heard it before. Has it become a religious practice to where you think about it once or twice a year? Or has it engrossed your very being? Because that's what Christianity was meant to do. Jesus died to grab hold of our soul, to save us and redeem us, that we might follow him. The tomb is empty. Yes, I believe so. I believe the evidence points towards that we live in a world of great design. And I believe there's a, a divine designer. I believe the evidence points toward the scripture being at least reliable for us, whether it is divine. I believe it's divine. I believe the evidence points towards the resurrection being the best way to answer the question of what happened. But in order to do that, we must be willing to surrender our lives. And look at me. Make no mistake. This is the most important decision we will ever make in our whole life. Easter's not about wearing a tie. It's not about you know, hunting eggs and looking for bunnies. Easter is resurrection day. And without resurrection day, look at me, none of us have any hope. Today, Jesus says to all of us over the centuries, come unto me, all you weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what he does. This morning, I'm inviting you if you've never received Christ, your personal Savior, to come to him. Would you bow your heads while we get ready for our invitation? Listen, I, I just ask you right now to consider the evidence. Consider what's been said. Consider what the scripture claims. Consider the claims of Christ. At least open your heart up. If there's anything in the way between you and God, why not, why not sacrifice it and get rid of it? We're not, some of us are bitter against God because we're mad at people. Don't ever judge God based upon people. That's not fair. That's like judging me based upon my family members. Don't do that. We don't judge anybody except by who they are. Don't judge Jesus except based upon the facts of who he was and who he is. And if you do not have a relationship with Christ this morning, right where you are, I'm going to ask you to be willing to admit that you need him. Believe in your heart. Repent of your sin. And ask him to come into your life right now. Right where you are, just pray a simple prayer. Just tell Jesus right where you are. Just say, Father, right now, 
I want to be serious with you. I believe you created this world. I know that I am part of that fall because I'm separated from you, God. But Jesus, I believe you rescued us. You came to this world and you paid the price for our sin. You took it upon yourself and took it to the grave. And you resurrected. And I believe, Jesus, that you are Lord and you are master. So I repent of my sin. I turn my life to you. I invite you to come into my life. I receive you. And I will follow you as Lord. If you pray that simple prayer, or if you have questions about that, would you lift your head up and look at me? I'm going to ask you this morning to just step out and come here in a minute. And for others of us, this Easter morning, maybe we're not walking with the Lord the way we should. Maybe someone had to drag you out of bed and force you to come this morning. Maybe you just say, I just don't believe all that Jesus stuff. Really? Why not? Have you really looked at it? Honestly? Are you just bringing the world? See, I I don't really meet very many atheists. I meet a whole lot of humanists. I meet a whole lot of people that don't want a moral authority telling them what to do, so they choose to try to create a world with no God so they can do whatever they want. But you still have to deal with the evidence. We still have to deal with Jesus. Because if what I'm saying is right, and we miss it, we miss everything. Now let me say this to you. Even if it's not true, which I believe it is, I wouldn't give anything for the life I have for Christ, in Christ. So this morning, I invite you to come when we stand here in a moment. If you need to renew your relationship to Christ or join the church, whatever it might be, you come this morning. Let's stand right now and you come. Come right now. Come on. Come on. If God's leading you, you come right now.